Hi everybody and welcome to another video cast of Wildlife for You Productions or podcasts or video cast, whatever you want to call them. This is we're just kicking off again with these video casts. This is going to be our second one with our esteemed guest here, Meg Pelly, <laughs> and I'll have Meg introduce herself here in in a second. But just want to let you know, I am your typical host. My name is Daryl Radajak. I'm a wildlife biologist. I've worked for a number of places and organizations and state and federal government agencies. But one of the things I love doing is I love teaching folks about wildlife. So there is a Wildlife for You platform. We have a website. We do webinars. We do video casts. We do a whole bunch of other things. We even do live and in-person field trips that Meg has joined us on a couple of times. Anyway, tonight what we wanted to do is we're going to stay focused within Great Smoky Mountain National Park. And so I thought we could probably spend hours upon hours talking about bears, but Meg convinced me to talk about <laughs> all wildlife within the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. So without further ado, we're going to begin this conversation. But first, I wanted to introduce Meg Pelly and Meg, if you want to mention that you are a volunteer in the yeah. park as well, by all means, do so. Okay. Yes, I'm, I uh, volunteer at the Sugarlands Visitor Center and in the historic area of the park, the Elkmont area. Um, and I guess I met you about three or four years ago doing the green fire tours, like you were saying, some of the in-person field trips. Um, and we've just been good friends. So I've called yeah. you or asked you a lot of wildlife questions that I get from a lot of yes. visitors that come into the park. And I think it all started when I called you up and said, okay, explain to me the hibernation of black bears. <laughs> um, and it's just kind of fed from there. So we've had a lot of good discussions and we thought, well, we should share this. So here we are. <laughs> so I imagine uh, come springtime, um, although I'm over here in Utah and we're, we're still getting pounded with snow. We got, I think we got like eight more inches of snow the last two days. So. It's good for Utah, but I understand the, the Smokies is finally getting some good weather, even though it's a little bit stormy from what I hear. But I imagine the crowds are starting to pick up um, at the park right now. Yeah, we set a record for the month of March. The highest number of people in the visitor center, the second highest number of people in the visitor center since it was built. And so it was, what, the 70s, I guess? So we set, we set a record for the month of March. Yeah, we, they had, I think last Sunday, they had over 7,000 people come through the visitor wow. center that day. And I, I imagine all of those people have questions oh, for yes. you about wildlife. Yep. So yes. what, what are some of the leading questions when it comes to wildlife and people are asking, like, what kind of animals are in the park? What what questions do you think you get the most? Uh, most of them are about the bear because, you know, that's what we're known for and they want to see them and it's amazing to me and I, I'm a little spoiled because I grew up in Tennessee and I've lived in East Tennessee for a while and been in the park for years and I've seen black bear um, but you know I have to remind myself that there are a lot of people coming into the visitor center to talk to me that have never seen a black bear or they've seen it at the zoo and so they really want to see a black bear and they'll come in and ask are they out do have you seen any you know and so I will explain them a little to them a little bit about they're starting to come out. We are, we are having bear jams already. <laughs> yep. um, and, but they're not seeing the new cubs yet. We're seeing the yearlings. Um, 
that are, you know, a year old, they're coming out with their mom, but the brand new ones I've, I've not seen or heard any reports on the brand new ones, but I bet that's going to change in the next week. Or so. Yeah. And I, I, I try to explain that to folks because I, I still try to answer a lot of questions on many of the Facebook forums, especially as they pertain to the Smokies. And that is one of the leading questions for, for the last month or so. There's a lot of people that are just getting on there and asking, are the bears out yet? Mm -hmm. And we'll still have the, the folks that say, oh, bears don't hibernate. Yeah. I won't go there. We're not going to talk about it. No. Do. Um, <laughs> most, most of the bears, here we are. We are the, oh, it's the first or second week of April now. Yeah. And so most of the bears have kind of emerged from their winter dens. They're, they're up and about. But you're, you're still not seeing all of the, the bears. And you hit on the high point. The last bears to emerge from their winter den typically are those, those mothers with the newborn cubs. We call them cubs of the year. So COY. Sometimes you'll hear people abbreviate or see people abbreviate it mm -hmm. and call them COI. Mm -hmm. But that simply stands for cubs of the year. And you have to understand those those cubs are typically born in January or February. Mm -hmm. So right now they're only a couple months old. They're only anywhere between five to ten pounds. So they are tiny. Mm -hmm. And so they're not very mobile. Now, typically when a bear dens in the Smokies and hibernates in the Smokies, spends the winter in whether or not it's a hollowed out tree, a rock crevice, even a ground den, mm -hmm. they're going to spend quite a bit of time sleeping. But most of those dens that the, the wild bears find are typically going to be high up in the mountains. It, they're not going to be like wide in the wide open of Cades Cove in the middle of a field or right. anything like that. And so those females that have just given birth, they might be on some mountaintop somewhere or at least higher up on the mountain. And because those cubs are not very mobile right now, it is going to take them a week or two until they, they do get their legs underneath them and can travel more with mom. And so it's usually not until about May or so that you see the, the females with those cubs of the year really arrive in full force in Cades Cove. And Cades Cove is probably the most popular area when it comes to viewing bears. Yeah. Lots of food there, lots of tourists there, mm -hmm. but that is the go-to place to see bears. Mm -hmm. Then probably Roaring Fork Motor Trail. Yes. The two, yep. the two best ones. Yes. So. And, and Roaring Fork Motor Trail is not open right now. The, the backside of it is still closed until this Saturday. I think it opens this Saturday. Um, but yes, lots of people come and wanting to go to Cades Cove and asking, will I see any bear there? And we have, as you said, we've seen some bear out in Cades Cove already, seen some bear out on uh, Little River. I've seen two in the last week out on Little River Road causing traffic jams. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny that you mention it because like I say, I monitor a lot of those Facebook pages and some of the pictures are starting to come in where people have seen bears and they'll say, oh, I saw a, a mama and two or three cubs. And they'll show the picture and right away I could tell they're not this year's cubs because mm -hmm. they're about 30 or 40 pounds. Right. So they're, they're good sized bears. Believe it or not, those are yearlings. Yeah. And so a lot of folks are just, there's nothing wrong with not understanding if you don't know it, but those those females mm -hmm. that have cubs, those cubs stay with her for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And so when they emerge from the den with her that second year, we call them yearlings. Mm -hmm. So right now they're about 14 months old mm -hmm. and they're usually about 30 or 40 pounds. Yeah. 
those cubs will stay with mom for another month or two but once she cycles again to uh, breed with another male she's going to kick those cubs mm -hmm. out she, or those yearlings out because mm -hmm. she doesn't want them around when these adult bears come in because adult males can be a little ornery yeah <laughs> and so she'll she'll kick those yearlings out and then they'll be on their own and they could survive just fine at at 15 16 months of age so you know so, we have been seeing uh quite a few yearlings <clears throat> in the park that are not doing well uh, right. You know, they've been very, very underweight, um, mal malnourished, like, I think we had one the pounds. other day that was seven pounds. Yep, yep. And, you know, um, and it didn't make it. Uh, Sparky. Yeah, yeah. And so they, of course, are taken to the UT Veterinary Clinic, and then they're taken to uh, ABR. Um, yep. But I think most of the bears that ABR has been having lately are even taken care of have been those underweight or malnourished yearlings. And so people were starting to say, is there a problem going around? But, you know, I'm assuming mom has disappeared or maybe something has happened to her yeah. because uh, the food supply is not low this year or last fall even. So first off, refresh everyone's memory what ABR is. Uh, it's the Appalachian Bear Rescue Area. Uh, it's the Appalachian Bear Rescue in Townsend, Tennessee, where they take in uh, bears from all over, I guess, the, yep. pretty much the southeast, uh, and rehabilitate them without hands-on so that they can turn them back out into the wild. And they do a great job. Um, you know, and we're fortunate, as you were a part of the beginning of that, we're very fortunate to have that in our area. Fantastic organization. Mm -hmm. They work very closely with the National Park Service and the State Wildlife Agency. In fact, state wildlife agencies of other states sometimes bring mm -hmm. their bears to ABR to be rehabbed, hands off, so they remain wild, and then they, they get sent back and, and released back into the wild. And this year, I was just reading a post today about them. I believe they have six or seven residents. All of them are Tennessee bears currently, mm -hmm. and they are all yearlings that have come in mm -hmm. severely malnourished, mm -hmm. like you said, anywhere from seven to twelve pounds. And that bear is fourteen months old, and they're and they're that big. Yeah. <laughs> so they they need some growing to do, and that's what the ABR does: gives them a safe place, gives them plenty of natural foods, mm -hmm. and then they grow up, and then they release them back to the wild. Mm -hmm. So we can. I, I'm sure you know about this, Meg, but we can probably spend four hours talking about bears alone. Yes. <laughs> and I wouldn't even give you a chance to talk. I can, I can do it myself. So we will, we will spend some episodes talking about bear behavior, different encounters or mm -hmm. different things like mm -hmm. that. But today's episode, we are going to focus on all sorts of wildlife. So if it's not bears, what are some other animals that people may ask you about when they come to visit you at the visitor center? You know, we have a lot of people come in because I'm at the Tennessee side. I'm at the Tennessee Visitor Center. Um, they come in and they want to know where are the elk. Um, and I say, well, you're on the wrong side of the park to see the elk. Um, and, you know, the elk hang out around around the Oconalefti Visitor Center, which is the North Carolina side of the park. And they were released very close to that area, uh, you know, a few years, few years back now. But um, yeah, so I think I asked Do you want a little history of that? Yeah, I do. I asked you one time to tell me a little bit more about that. I, I, I just want to say, 
I was living on the North Carolina side when they released the elk. And not too far, they released them in Catalucci. And I lived not too far from Catalucci. Um, and my children were little, and I would, I would load my kids up and drive up there in the evenings, and there was not anyone around to watch the elk much when they first released them. And I would park and, and sit on the hood of my Suburban <laughs> and watch these elk out in the field and listen to them bugle. Um, but they've they've migrated a little ways away from the Catalucci area. So yep. I asked you one time about to give me some history on this. <laughs> well, first and foremost, some people may be surprised. If you have lived your whole life east of the Mississippi River, elk are not typically an animal that you think about. Mm -hmm. you, you think about white-tailed deer mm -hmm. and possibly black bears in some areas. But deer and turkey are probably the biggest animals that most people think about east of the Mississippi right. River. But believe it or not, uh, prior to this European settlement, uh, North America was covered with elk. And there was different, it was believed there was different subspecies of elk, but I don't like going into the whole subspecies <laughs> argument. But needless to say, there, there was elk that ranged from the west coast all the way to the east coast. Mm. Now those eastern elk were pretty much wiped out uh, we call them extirpated. They were completely wiped out from the eastern half of the U.S. In fact, that subspecies was completely wiped out and it went extinct. But elk, for the most part, have hung on in the western half of the United States. And so with the onset of state wildlife agencies and some of these federal wildlife agencies and realizing the atrocities that Europeans or white man has created by wiping out so many of these species, we began to right our wrongs. And so a couple of the states, Pennsylvania was one of the very first ones, uh, early 1900s, to have a small elk population. But then some of the other southeastern states started jumping on board and trying to restore elk within their borders. So Kentucky was one in the 1990s that started, and then Tennessee and Great, Great Smoky Mountain National Park they were in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. In fact, Tennessee released their first elk in the year 2000, which was up at Royal Blue, which is now known as the North Cumberland Wildlife Management Area. But Great Smoky Mountain National Park was right on their heels. And Kim DeLoger, who is my mentor and idol when it comes to wildlife, he was the head biologist for the park for a long, long time. Not to say he's an old man, but um, <laughs> he, was, he was my mentor. <laughs> Uh, but he was a big part of reintroducing or bringing elk back mm -hmm. to the Smokies. And so in 2001, the, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park or the National Park Service brought in, I believe it was 25 individuals that, was, that were released in 2001. And then they followed it up the, the following year with an additional uh, few dozen animals. And like you said, they were, they were put into this North Carolina side of the park place called Cataloochee Valley. I've been there. It's not, it, it's off the beaten path yes. for most people because most people think of the Smokies, they think of Cades Cove. Right. And they don't, they don't realize these other pockets that are absolutely gorgeous and yes. wonderful all over the park. Yes. And so they released the elk there. And I will tell you, Meg, back in 2002 or in 2001, 2002, in the very beginning, elk, both in Great Smoky Mountain National Park and in Tennessee, 
they were struggling because you have to understand when you release these animals. We, we got a lot of the animals from a place called Elk Island National Park or Provincial Park because it's up in Canada. And uh, they released those animals. So Western animals, and they were released a long, long way from home. So whenever you release a new group of animals and you put them into a completely foreign area, they are going to struggle. They're going to, they don't know where to go when resources are low. They don't know much about the, the local predators and where the good calving areas are. And so for a while, they would struggle. And so believe it or not, I think this is one of the most interesting things. In the very beginning, they were really struggling with reproduction. So elk calves were being born but they're highly preyed upon by black bears. Yeah. It was easy picking mm -hmm. because the elk didn't know where to go, what to do, and mm -hmm. the bears were like, oh, here's this easy meal. Yeah. And so for a number of years, the park would, right before the elk calves would drop their calves, or the elk cows would drop their calves, the park would go in, capture the bears around Cataluchi where the elk were, move them to the other side of the park, and by the time <laughs> the bears walked back, the elk calves were large enough and big enough and strong enough to evade or run away from the bears. Huh. And so it, it took a, a couple of years of that. Mm -hmm. But once once that population got established, once the cows kind of knew where to go, where the good calving area is, they started having higher and higher uh, reproduction rates. And, and so more and more calves were being born each and every year. And I, I could kick myself for not looking up the exact numbers. You might know this, but w what is the park estimate for the number of elk in in the park and, and just outside the park by um I don't know. Cherokee? <laughs> I, I do, okay. I I, do not it, know that. I think it's between 100 to 200 animals. Yeah. Um, I don't know the exact, but if you look up the National Park Service website, I'm sure they'll have a yeah. ton of information. Yeah. But needless to say, elk are part of the landscape again in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. They, mm -hmm. they have been since about 2001, so for about two decades now, um, people can actually go to the Smokies and see mm -hmm. elk in their natural habitat. Yes, they they love to hang out around the fields at the kind of Lefty Visitor Center. Um, but I did have an interesting question, uh, and so I'll throw that out there for you that, that someone did ask me. Um, they wanted to know why they're not moving over to the Tennessee side. Um, you know, they, they tend to stay because they were assuming that because Cades Cove is such a great area for wildlife that they could go to Cades Cove and pretty much see all kinds of wildlife that all the wildlife we have in the park. And I said, we won't find the elk there. And so they wanted to know why the elk are, are not moving over to the Tennessee side. And so I had a thought, but I'm going to let you answer it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it, it's a good thought. I, I get asked that quite a bit. I'm sure the park biologists get that question all the time. They're not there yet. They're, they're kind of hoping, at least from what I was told, they were hoping that they don't become a fixture in, the, in Cades Cove because there's already bear jams that clog up the place. So can you imagine yeah. elk jams now? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one, one of the reasons, because Catalucci is a little kind of off the radar, so the elk are thriving over mm -hmm. there, um, you, 
it, it, I'm sure you know this, Meg, but a couple of years ago there was a couple of elk that came up over the mountain. They they made it all the way to Townsend, and so they were getting really really close. Yeah. Typically, with elk, with so many kinds of animals, you get these wandering animals that will go on these adventures to find new territory. A lot of times, you, you get a lot of these young males that kind of go on these jaunts you have to understand in order for the population to get established you're going to have to have the females the pregnant females and those those young calves now they tend not to wander as much as some of those solitary males mm -hmm. um, and so I have a feeling whether or not the Park Service likes it or not eventually elk will find their way to Cades Cove yeah and they'll they, they may find that they like it but one of the things that happens they'll go on the exploratory they know Cataloochee is a great place to live and thrive so although they may explore these other areas a lot of times they have a fidelity to where they know it's good yeah and so the grass isn't always greener on the <laughs> other side so they might they, they might find places but they tend to come back to the Cataloochee area yeah now, like I said, whether or not the Park Service likes it or not, there may come a time where elk do find their way to the yeah. to the cove and stay there, but it hasn't happened yet. It's, it's like I told the visitor, the groceries are good on the North Carolina side, <laughs> and so yep. they're not all venturing out to see what's out on the other side of the mountain. <laughs> yeah, and especially when, like in the fall, when it's time, elk reproduce, their, their, it's called a rut, that's mm -hmm. their mating season. And so if, if you have animals that wander far, far away, and then they're looking for mates, and all the mates are back in Catalonia, mm -hmm. they're going to say, well, there's nothing good keeping me here. I'm going to go on back. Right. So it, it might happen over time, but it, it just takes a long time for these, the, these ranges to really expand. Yeah. 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 Well, they sure are beautiful animals. I have, I have never, I've encountered them on some back roads in the park. Um, and I've seen elk jams, just like bear jams, around the visitor center. You know, um, and that's another thing that people need to be really cautious not to approach these wild animals. You know, especially the elk um, and uh, any wild animal. But do you, do you re do you recall? You mentioned about not approaching. Do you recall? I don't know. I'm guessing it's going to be six, seven years ago. There was. There was an elk in Cantalucci that it was a young male elk that approached the photographer. Yes. And was, yeah, and that's, everyone was coming out against the photographer and he, he took a beating. I, I would not blame him one bit because that elk had been fed and had been approached by numerous people. Mm -hmm. And the elk had become habituated. It was just mm -hmm. way too used to being around people. And so, unfortunately, he got to rubbing his antlers and nudging up against the photographer, and the park had to go in and remove that animal simply because of the danger that animal provides. You mentioned they're, they're big, they're beautiful animals, mm -hmm. but they're big animals. Mm -hmm. An adult bull can weigh 500, all the way up to 700 pounds. And if you have an adult bull that gets too frisky or too... Um, they get re really amped up during the rut. Mm -hmm. It can be a danger to the public. Mm -hmm. And so it's an unfortunate incident, but it's it's all to make sure the public and the wildlife remain healthy. Right, right. Yes. Um, 
Well, I've had a few people ask me some questions about some other animals. I'm going to throw them out there at you. Sure. Um, I had one lady come in one day and ask me if we had wolves in the park. Uh, no. <laughs> That's what I've done. There, there, I'm, I'm going to lump two together. I'll talk about them separately. But th there's a lot of people will talk about wolves and cougars. And we have neither of those animals within the park. But let's start with wolves because first and foremost, when people think about wolves, I would say the vast majority of people are thinking about gray wolves or what we call timber wolves. Mm -hmm. So you all know what a timber wolf or a gray wolf looks like. Those have never been in Tennessee. They've never been in the Smokies. They were m more northern species that now there's lots of them out west but in the southeast predominantly before this european settlement wiped out all these wonderful creatures we had the predominant canine in the southeast was this animal that was called a red wolf mm -hmm. now when it comes to canine genetics it gets really really wonky but for the most part a red wolf is kind of a smaller version of it's almost like a mix between a gray wolf and a coyote if, if you could blend those two that's about the size yeah. of the red wolf and they were all over the southeast and like i said early europeans came in thought they ruled the roost and they wiped them all out in fact they did such a good job at wiping out red wolves that they were officially declared extinct in the wild i think it was in the 1980s i believe but the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service could not find any more red wolves anywhere in North America in the wild. Now, there were specimens that were in captivity in multiple zoos. And so the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Endangered Species Program, they undertook the Red Wolf Project. And they were hoping to restore red wolves to some of their former range in the southeast. And believe it or not, the Smokies was chosen as a potential re release site to restore red wolves back into the southeast. Now, that project took place in the mid-1990s, um, and I had a close tie to it, believe it or not. Um, anyway, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service tried restoring red wolves into Great Smoky Mountain National Park. In particular, they put a bunch of wolves in the Cades Cove area. Yes. And they, they put them there, and they, they followed them for a couple of years, hoping to get these red wolves reestablished. But they ran into some problems with the program. First off, they were having horrible success at, well, the wolves were reproducing, but the young pups were not surviving. Mm -hmm. And they, they ran into a myriad of problems. Like, there were some pups that, that died because they contracted parvovirus. There was a couple of pups that died because the parasite load was too high. They were just completely infested with parasites. Um, they actually lost one litter of pups. Their best assumption is that a bear, a, a black bear, had got into the den and completely decimated the den because one day the, the wolf pups were there and the next day they were gone. And so they really struggled with raising newborn pups, and they tried for multiple years. Mm -hmm. Another thing that happened, I, I mentioned that 
Uh, red wolves are kind of this combination between a gray wolf and a coyote. And by that time in the 1990s, coyotes had moved into the area. Just so you know, coyotes typically were not found in the southeast or even the eastern half of the U.S. Yeah. Way back hundreds of years ago, coyotes were primarily found in the prairie states and in the southwest. But because we wiped out the cougars, the wolves, all these other apex predators, coyotes started expanding and filling in the niche that was left behind when we wiped out all these other animals. And so when they tried reintroducing red wolves, there were coyotes present. Now, you can imagine if you're a red wolf and there's and it's mating season and there's not it's really hard for you to find another red wolf because there's only a couple of them. There was worry that they were mating with some of the coyotes and they didn't want to dilute the gene pool. And so they unfortunately decided to pull the plug, the Fish and Wildlife Service did, and they pulled the plug on the Red Wolf program. And so by 1997, 1998, they were gathering up the red wolves that were released in the park. They all had radio collars on them. Mm -hmm. And they gathered up all the adults and they moved them to a population, to an island uh, south, or it's in North Carolina, called Alligator River National Refuge. And so all the red wolves that were released in the park, they were all accounted for, they were all gathered up and moved away. Now you will still hear people talk about they, they saw a red wolf and they, it kind of makes me smile, Meg, because when I was, I, I had just moved to Tennessee working with bears and I was talking to Chris Lukash, who was the head biologist for the Fish and Wildlife Service over the Red Wolf Project. And I asked him, I said, Chris, since they look so similar to coyotes, how do you tell the difference between the two? And he's like, well, the only way, like if, if you were to look at them and, and you, you see how the two walk side by side, the best bet is the one with the radio collar on it is going to be the red wolf. <laughs> so he even admitted they're super hard to tell apart. Right. But they knew which ones were the wolves, which ones were not. And so they gathered up all the wolves with the radio collars and shipped them away. I will say I am so happy to admit while I was living in Tennessee late uh, 1990s or mid-1990s, I actually saw one of the red wolves in the cove. And the reason I knew it was a red wolf because it had the radio collar on it. Oh. And so, <laughs> so anyway, um, after they abandoned the project, I will tell you I benefited from that because they – they captured all the wolves. They took all the collars off when they were shipping them to North Carolina. And they actually gave me the red wolf collars because I was working at the Appalachian Bear Center at the time, which is now the, the Bear Rescue. But they gave me the wolf collars to put on the cubs that I was rehabilitating so we could track the cubs and measure the success rate of that program. So oh, how neat. Long-winded, but there are no more red wolves. There are no gray wolves ever ever in the park yeah um red the red wolf project did take place in the mid 90s but those wolves have been gone for over 20 years sad to say i wish that the red wolves were have been successfully restored they are still struggling i believe there's only about uh 20 to 24 animals in the wild red wolves in the wild wow. that exist and they're all in that north carolina alligator river national refuge yeah. area
it's right on the coast. Yeah. So. Well, the wolves may have not done so well, but the coyotes certainly did. They yeah. are, I see those lots of times in the cove and in my backyard. They're in my backyard. <laughs> I hear the most every evening and I go out and start hollering for my kitty cats to go. They're, they're tremendously successful, tremendously yes. resourceful, and they filled that niche. When, when mm -hmm. Europeans got rid of the cougars and the black bears, they wiped out black bears in most areas, and the wolves, the, there was like this devoid area. So you had lots of animals, rabbits and squirrels, that they typically were just thriving in this artificial yep. landscape devoid of predators. And so the coyotes are like, heck, we'll come. <laughs> so so they, they moved in. And now they're they're pretty much all over the entire yeah. North American continent. Yeah. Uh, and even in town, you, you see them sometimes, a straggler, and in, in closer into town than I'd like for them to be. But, uh, yep. yeah. So we can open the can of worms about the cougars. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, that, that I, is... I want to say that um, I live in an area in Tennessee where <clears throat> this is a highly debatable topic about about cougars. And, um, you know, and, and again, we're only talking about what's in the park. I know. But, um, you know, lots of people in this area, the area I live in, will tell you there are. They cougars. tell me all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that they've seen them. Um, you know, so give us, give us your, uh, thoughts on, just go ahead and open that can of worms, Daryl. <laughs> okay. Cougars, also known as pumas, also known as mountain lions, also known as a whole host of other animals. <laughs> yeah. They, they're the, one of the most amazing animals out there. Now, prior to these Europeans arriving hundreds of years ago, Cougars were the most widespread animal in the Western Hemisphere. So literally all of North America, Central America, and South America, cougars reigned that, the entire Western Hemisphere. And throughout the, the early European settlement, we did not, did not like competing with some of these larger apex predators. And so looking at North America alone, the, the, the Europeans started wiping out these animals and they did an amazing job. And unfortunately they did too good of a job because cougars were extirpated pretty much from the Eastern half of the U S so Mississippi river all the way East, usually by the early to mid 1800s, all the way up to the early 1900s, they wiped out the remaining cougars. The only place, that cougars hung on and existed in the eastern half of the U.S. was a small population just outside of the Florida Everglades. Mm -hmm. they're, they're nicknamed Florida Panthers. They're, they're just a standard everyday old cougar. But everywhere else in every other eastern state, they were extirpated. Meg, I'm going to quiz you. Do you know the last recorded cougar in Tennessee in prior... Yeah, prior to Tennessee or the park to Tennessee. Ah, uh, well, and, and just so you know, it ended up being in the park. <laughs> I went 1920. 
Yeah, was it 1920 or 1930 with Sparks? I don't um, know. I'm guessing. <laughs> or not, not Sparks. It, it was up near Spence Field, I believe. Okay. Um, and I believe the gentleman, I don't know if it was Spence or Sparks, but the the last known cougar was killed uh, up on near Spence Field. I think it was 1930. Okay. And so it was right near the very beginnings of, of the, park. the national park. Yeah. And so that was the last time there was any ever, ever any evidence uh, of a cougar there. Now, I will tell you, in the time after that, there might have been other cougars hanging on, but for decades and decades. So from the 1930s all the way up until uh, 2015, there was no record, no evidence of any cougar within Tennessee or the National Park. Now, I will tell you, Anywhere that cougars exist, the western states, even though we might not have huge populations, where they live, they leave evidence. They are not ghosts. They, they will have their photograph taken. <laughs> A big thing, they, they get killed. They get struck by vehicles. L look at California. There's only, there'd be a, a few out in that, well, they, they, they're constantly getting hit by vehicles. There was a small population in Florida. Even when that population was down to like 30 or 40 animals, they were still getting struck by cars. And so there's photographs. There's, there's carcasses that, that pull up. Cougars eat a large animal usually every 7 to 10 days. So a white-tailed deer-sized animal every 7. So there's evidence of cougar kill sites. I've, I've investigated them in my biology jobs here in the West. And so they leave evidence all over the place. Here, here's my thing, Meg. The West has a fraction of the people that the East has. The East is so much more <laughs> populated. There's not a lot of places where a 120 to 200 pound animal can live completely undetected, unless it's, it's the Amazon rainforest or something, but it's not happening. <laughs> Not happening in the East. Yeah. Now, I will tell you, I have heard hundreds upon hundreds of people talk about cougar sightings. And I, we teach classes. Wildlife for You teaches classes about cougars. And right at the very beginning of the class I teach, I will, I will show a picture of someone say, all right, look at this picture and just tell me what it says on this, on this slide. And then at the end of the class, I ask the people – Okay, remember that first slide, what did it say? I have yet, out of dozens and dozens and dozens of people that have taken that class that knew I was testing them, they all get it wrong. Their eyes deceive them. And so when it comes to cougars, your eyes, remember, the eyes are the easiest thing to fool. Now imagine not just your eyes being easy to fool, but your brain tricking you to tell you what you think you saw. And when thousands of years ago, when we were still living in the woods, on our own, humans I'm talking about, our body, our brains were designed to detect danger. And so we survived better when we saw those big scary animals. And so that trait has lingered. And so if you see something flash before your eyes in the woods, the first thing your brain's going to jump to is that's a big scary animal of some sort. And so not only do your eyes fool you, but your brain is trying to convince your eyes that you saw something that you 
probably didn't see because if those animals, those large animals were living here, we would know about it. We would have carcasses, we would have photographs. Um, and I, I, could, I could talk forever and ever on this. In 2015, a cougar from the western states showed up in the easternmost county or the westernmost county of Tennessee. It showed up in, uh, I believe, it was October of 2015. It proceeded to travel eastward across the state, and as it traveled over the next couple of months, it was photographed nine times. That one cougar was photographed nine times. If that one cougar was photographed nine. How come no other cougar, no other, could ever be, it hasn't been photographed since. No other cats can be, it's a really simple answer. If they were present, living here year round, we would know about it. We'd have photographs of them. Um, and so I'm going to get a lot of hate mail. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's, I know so many people that have seen cougars or have yeah. believe they have seen cougars. Now, I will tell you, 10, 20 years ago, I, well, maybe even longer, 20 or 30 years ago, I think there was a really strong possibility of people seeing cougars in the wild in the east, Tennessee, or even the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. The reason being, wildlife laws were pretty lax throughout the, the late 1900s, and so people could own these dangerous animals. They could own a black bear. They could own a cougar. Mm -hmm. And then we started saying, you know, it's probably not a good idea. So more and more laws were put on the books. But 20, 30 years ago, people had these animals and realized, oh, my gosh, they grow, they're no longer a cute kitten or a cute bear cub. They're a big animal. And so not wanting to do anything, they would take the animal and release it. They tend not to survive too long because they don't have those natural instincts. Mm -hmm. But there very well could have been incredible cougar sightings um, a number of times. And people will say, well, they're always passing through. Well, the one that passed through um, back in 2015, we, we, we had loads of pictures of it. We, we knew exactly where it was, where it was um, throughout most of its travels. And so I don't think they're constantly passing through, but they will show back up in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Cougar populations are doing great in the West. They're expanding. And so those Midwestern states are getting reestablished with cougars, and pretty soon they'll be knocking on Tennessee's door. I think it'll be a long time before they ever make it to the Appalachians or the Smoky Mountains, but hopefully, hopefully within our lifetime, one might show up, and we'll just hope for the best. So why do you think they're not here? I mean, I, I know they were wiped out, but if they are reestablished out west, why not? Why would I not establish I, I have an answer for you. It's, it's people. You have to understand the, the folks in the West have lived with cougars throughout their whole, they were, cougars were never extra, they were never wiped out. And so there is a tolerance. In, in fact, I could show you my phone um, almost every day, every other day, they're talking about, oh, there is a cougar over in Ogden. And they'll, they'll have pictures. It's kind of like a novelty. It's, it's a cool thing. What happens if a cougar shows up in the east where people have not lived with cougars for well over 100 years? There is this big, scary animal mentality, and people are afraid. Like, a cougar is a big, dangerous, and it's not really, but the people in the east 
consider cougars this animal that is not good. And so, unfortunately, because of that, now, I shouldn't say everybody. There's some folks that probably would love to have cougars reestablished. But there's enough people in the East that have lived their entire their entire lifetime and generations and generations without these animals that if one shows up, it, it's an enemy. And so that mm-hmm. animal gets killed before it could ever get established, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So I keep saying it'll be a long time before they get established. I, I'm not even sure they will ever get established back east of the Mississippi because the human tolerance, you, you have generations of people that it's like the big bad wolf. It's just, it's a mentality that would be so very, very difficult to change. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's my, that's my theory. Yeah. You, uh, you know, you always hear sometimes of the cougars out West, uh, you know, usually once a year you hear somebody was attacked or killed or stalked. And, you know, I think that's the mentality that we see here. You know, a bear, it's probably, not going to stalk us, um, you know, but the the thought of something that powerful in the woods that might stalk you, I, I think yes. that's the mentality that we see is, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> now, I understand when, when there, there are two different animals when you're, you're comparing bears to cougars. Yes. Bears are omnivores. They will eat anything. In fact, they, they're lazy. They'll eat the berry before they'll go out hunting anything. <laughs> and so the, they're, they're called opportunistic omnivores so they eat whatever they find cougars are what we call true carnivores Mm -hmm. or what we another term i'm going to use some nerdy biology terms obligate carnivores so they have to eat meat Mm -hmm. and because of that they have to kill a large animal like i said every seven to ten days to feed themselves and so they are designed to hunt and kill these larger creatures. Mm-hmm. Now I will say humans are not on their menu. Think of all the cougars. The the state I live, they estimate 3000 cougars within the state of Utah. But all the other states have western states have lots of cougars and lots of people. If people were on the menu, <laughs> given how many people go out and hike in cougar country, which is the entire west, you would be reading about it, another fatality every single day, but you're not. Right. They say the best deterrent when it comes to cougars is simply the human voice. Now, I will tell you, because cougars are designed to always hunt, if they hear a large animal coming down the trail, they might go into that cat-like predator mode where they're getting ready. A meal might be coming down the trail. And so they'll get ready, and if they see a human or a couple humans walking – they may stalk them because they're trying to figure out, is this something good for me to eat? Their main diet is elk and mule deer. And although they're trying to figure out what you are, whether or not you're a good meal, if you if they hear the human voice, that is the deterrent. Oh, it, it triggers them right away. This isn't something to eat. And so sadly, I will say a lot of, a lot of the stories you hear it's usually like a malnourished cougar and oftentimes they go for the smaller humans. So the 16 and under mm-hmm. or smaller women. Yeah. So I am completely safe. They see me <laughs> and they're like, I ain't going after that guy. <laughs> so anyway, um, obviously those with today's media, they're going to be national news overnight yeah. because of a 
crazy freak instant. Yeah. Instant. And, and so people people have this bad impression that cougars yeah. are these bloodthirsty human killers, and they're not. Well, and you know, we kind of see that with with the black bear in the park. I I have numerous people every day come in and talk to me and say, "Should I be worried about the bears?" And what should I do? And, you know, they've heard, and we've only had two deaths in the park in the history of the park. So, you know, <laughs> that's a, that's pretty good odds, I think. Um, but just like you said, it's it becomes a, a sensational news story. And now suddenly the bears are there waiting to attack you. You know, just like you said, that's, that's not true. That's, you're not even on their menu. So... Um, Think about how many encounters on a daily basis, all the people going through Cades Cove or Roaring Fork or even in the backcountry, how many bear encounters with people take place every mm -hmm. single day? Yeah. We're, we're talking every year thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And like you said, two fatalities in the history of the park. Yeah. 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 You know, I always tell them, be, uh, leave no trace and and be bear wise, but, um, especially just not leaving any trace, not leaving the, the yeah. pieces of garbage that you're dropping on the trail or leaving in your car and leaving it unlocked. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's why, um, we on the East coast tend to hear all those stories on the West coast about the cougars and they're hearing the stories about the bears. <laughs> we're just swapping yeah. fears is all we're doing. <laughs> Well, irrational and that, that, that's one thing I want to dispel. I, I've been living in the West since 2015. And so every day I go hiking, I'm in, I'm in bear country. I'm in cougar country. When I was down in, in New Mexico, I was in wolf country. And it, you don't even think about it. it it's just such a wild, rugged, raw, beautiful landscape. Mm -hmm. And I, I would give anything to see those animals and you never do because they're so wary of humans, mm -hmm. but it, there's just something beautiful and special to be in those areas that have those apex predators in it. Yes. Yes. Um, so I have a, another question to ask you. I, I feel like I represent all the, all the people, all the lay people who have wildlife questions and nobody to ask. <laughs> I'm bringing all these questions that keep being brought to me. That's what I'm here to ask for. you. Um, so around the visitor center and actually several areas around the park, turkey are plentiful, but we have uh, around our visitor center, we have white turkey and we've nicknamed her Miss Dolly. And actually, well, yeah, it is her. We've nicknamed her Miss Dolly. And so people will come in they'll, they'll, and the turkeys are really used to the people you know, they get a little too close, in my opinion, the turkeys to the people. Um, but, but people will take pictures of them and then they'll come into the visitor center and they'll show me this picture and they'll go, what is this? <laughs> and I'll say, oh, that's Miss Dolly. <laughs> so then I, I get to tell the gentleman, you can now go home and say you had a picture made with Dolly. <laughs> <laughs> but explain to us a little bit about what we're seeing. What what are they seeing when okay. they're seeing these white turkeys? The, you'll you'll get a couple of different answers depending on who you ask. Yeah. But generally, the uh, the reasoning behind a white turkey there, there's a really simple one. If you live near a turkey farm that raises them, one could have gotten out. <laughs> and so there there are some domestic turkey breeds that are white. Mm -hmm. 
but that doesn't happen all too often. And, and there, you know, if you live near a turkey farm. Now, I imagine Sugarland's Visitor Center. There's no really big commercial turkey production places anywhere near there. There are probably not too many people raising turkeys. White turkeys can occur naturally in the wild. Usually when you have this white coloration, it's called, there's a genetic trait, it's, it's called leucism, but what the animal will display is this leucistic or white coloring to it. Now, I, I have not seen or I'm not familiar with Dolly. Is she like a pure white or is she more, does she have some brown, like is she a smoky phase? Um, she's probably a smoky face. She's, she's more white than brown. Right. She's kind of white. But she does have brown. Yeah. A little brown maybe on the, more on the tips of her wing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That, that is almost assuredly purely natural. It, it's this smoky phase or this, or smoke phase. Um, but it's, she's displaying this leucistic gene where, some recessive gene that she had when she was born is now displaying. And so they're beautiful, beautiful birds. Mm -hmm. They happen, they're not common, but they do happen in usually in every county somewhere. A couple of birds will have that particular gene show up. I think they're gorgeous. Mm -hmm. I think you hang on to Dolly and, and you make her your mascot and keep her around as long as you can. Unfortunately, the, the lifespan of a wild turkey is not very long. You, usually only four to five years at max. Ah. Um, because here's the thing. I don't know if you know this, but turkeys taste good. <laughs> <laughs> and so they taste good not just to you and me, but to every single predator out there. Now, it's not so much those adult turkeys that are getting preyed upon, mm -hmm. but when a wild turkey reproduces, right now, now's the time of the year, you, you can hear turkeys gobbling yep. all throughout the southeast right now. And so they're mating, the hens are getting bred, and they're, they're laying nests. Now, turkeys are what we call ground nesters. They, they create a nest on the ground. They lay anywhere from 8 to 14 eggs. And the female turkey will sit on those eggs for a number of weeks until they hatch. And then those small little fledglings are going to follow mom. And you have turkeys that are that mm -hmm. big. Um, it's at that point when they're still in the egg or when they're this big that everything, absolutely everything loves eating them. From raccoons to foxes to coyotes to bobcats to snakes. Snakes will prey on turkey nests. Mm. And so... Turkeys, um, I wish they weren't so flavorful because <laughs> they they definitely struggle in the wild. That, that's one of the reasons. Once they get to that kind of juvenile age where they can fly, their life expectancy skyrockets yes. or, or their their survivability skyrockets because they can then elude predators. Yeah. But when they're an egg or they're this little fledgling that's just running around, they're wide open to aerial predators like raptors and mm -hmm. and everything else. And so, um, unfortunately, everything loves to eat turkey. So, I, I, want, I did want to ask you, what is their range? How many miles will a turkey go very far? Will they kind of stay in the same area? Because I have seen this, and I don't think it's the same one, but I've seen a white turkey several miles away from the visitor center as I was coming into the park. And I've seen that for several years. 
So I thought, am I seeing the same turkey? And uh, I, I tend to think I'm not because I actually saw it on the same day, but it was pretty, they were pretty far apart. So I wondered what's the range of. Now, if you, if you saw like quite a distance that same day or even a couple days apart, it was probably two different turkeys. Mm -hmm. Now I will tell you turkeys, we're learning more and more about turkeys. The turkeys have run into an issue within the last decade or so where they're not doing as well as they used to. It's probably because all the predators finally figured out how good they taste. And so they're, they're, they're getting, they're getting hammered by so many different animals, but there's lots of Turkey studies going on right now, even in the state of Tennessee, they're putting lots of radio collars and, and tags on turkeys to learn more about them. Now, for the most part, a Turkey is not going to travel miles upon miles over days. Now there is tremendous seasonal variation. So in the winter time, Winter time is tough for most animals because there's not a lot of food out mm -hmm. there. That's why bears hibernate. <laughs> there's not a lot of food out there. So turkeys will form these large flocks in the winter time and go to wherever they can find food. And they'll spend a number of months kind of in these larger, lar larger flocks. And then come springtime, early spring, they will break up. Spring green up occurs and they break up and they will travel great distances to find their kind of their summer habitat, mm -hmm. summer and fall habitat. And so you could have large seasonal travels between where Turkey spends the winter and where it spends the summer. But for the most part, especially now during the breeding season, that hen is not going to be traveling far because she is going to be either breeding or with, she's going to be on a nest or with some young poults. Right. And so they do not travel very far at this time of the year. Yeah. Yeah, I, when I come into the park, I, there's a, I, I see them in almost the same place, not the white one, but um, I see them in almost the same place yeah. every time I pass through, uh, especially, yeah. like you said, right now. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's really interesting. I, I had kind of wondered what was going on with the white turkeys. I had a thought, you know, so completely natural. Some people will say, Oh, it's just a domestic bird. Yeah. And if, if you live near a domestic farm, it could be, but white turkeys are something that occurs naturally. Yeah. She's pretty. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we got some other really cute little animals in the park. I was going to ask you about these were, I know reintroduced into the rivers, which are the river otters. Um, and you know, they're kind of hard to spot. You know, people are always coming in hoping to see one. And I think I have only seen one one time and that was years ago. And as much time as I spend on the rivers, crossing them in the, in the park on my hiking, uh, I've only seen one once. So what's going on with all those river otters? One, wonderful little creatures, river otters, they're, they're, seen as or considered one of the more playful animals because oftentimes if you do see them or when people do see them they're oftentimes playing on the bank mm -hmm. and it looks like they're just having fun um another really cool story uh, poor uh, black guy to the eastern european settlement because <laughs> <laughs> we wiped otters out throughout most yeah. of the eastern half of the u.s again and so i believe starting in the 60s and 70s the state of tennessee at least um, as well as the park, we, we started this idea of restoring river otters. 
believe it or not, we got a lot. The, the one place they really hung on and they hung on quite well was down in Louisiana in those bayous and those backwater areas. And so many of the eastern states, um, including Tennessee, would get river otters from the state of Louisiana and bring them up and release them. The one good thing with restoring animals that once lived here is, <coughs> excuse me, they, they usually do quite well. If you restore them to their previous habitat, um, because there's this abundance of food, you release them into an area, especially those, those river otters where they're going to be feeding on fish in the streams, and Tennessee is loaded with fish. <laughs> and so if you put those animals in a really good habitat that has lots of resources, they're going to do fairly well. They might struggle for the first couple of years, like I said with the elk. They kind of struggle until they figure things mm -hmm. out. But once they figure things out, their populations tend to explode. And so river otters went from being pretty much extirpated in the whole state of Tennessee to having river otters in every single county in the state of Tennessee, including Great Smoky Mountain National Park. And I don't, I'm trying to recall if I ever if I ever specifically recall seeing otters in the park, I've seen them elsewhere, but yes, they're in, they're in the little river quite often. Yeah. You, you, you see posts on Facebook every once in a while, they'll see them up in Gatlinburg yeah. and yeah, lots of, lots of cool little places, but yeah, fantastic little creature that uh, has been successfully restored and hopefully we never have to restore them again because they, they thrive and flourish I, from now yeah. on. They're, they are cute. I, I think they hang out on the little, actually in the little river, along the little yeah. river road <laughs> uh, in yeah. the Elkmont area. And I believe probably Abrams Creek in the back of Cades Cove near where Abrams Falls runs in, into that. Um, I, I will tell you that when it comes to tolerance, most people think otters are the coolest, cutest thing. But if you are a landowner and you have a pond and you have fish in that pond, if you get a, a couple of otters in there, they can wipe out the fish in your pond pretty quickly. Yeah. So most people love them, but there's there's some folks that are like, ugh, why'd you bring those things Right, back? right. So. <laughs> well, there. what other animals can you think of we haven't discussed? Oh, my gosh. Well, considering that the Smokies is one of the most biologically diverse national places in the world, literally, we can talk about so many species. We won't go into it. I think what we might do is we might invite a specialist who is much better with the, the whole reptiles and amphibians. We call them herps or herptofauna. Yep. Um, and so the Smokies are notorious for having yeah. some of the highest diversity of salamanders yes. anywhere in the country. So I should see if I could, I could call up one of my salamander friends, <laughs> biologists that can, can talk about them because you can literally spend hours talking about salamanders alone and all the different kinds there are. Yes. Um, but people don't realize we, we've spent the last hour or so talking about those charismatic megafauna, the bigger animals, mm -hmm. the, the creatures of your imagination, even the ones that don't live in the park, like the wolves and the cougars, they still get talked about. Um, 
but for the most part, most people see those bigger animals, the elk, the bear, the de- we didn't even talk about deer, but deer are everywhere. So <laughs> we don't have to, we don't have to talk about yeah. Um, but I think one of the most amazing things is to to learn about those animals that are underneath those rocks, yeah. the the salamanders, the crayfish. Uh, that even the insects that are in the Smokies are just phenomenal. Yes. <clears throat> we haven't even touched about bird species. And one of my all-time favorite wildlife photographers, I mentioned him before the show, Bob Howdeschel, most amazing wildlife photographer, especially when it comes to birds. And so much of his work is just around the Smokies and mm-hmm. um, some of the areas just outside the park. And it's just like the crazy diversity of wildlife that the Great Smoky Mountain National Park offers, mm-hmm. it's one of those things out of sight, out of mind. So when people don't see it, they don't think it's there, but it's right beneath their nose every time they yes. go into the park. I have a lot of people come in and ask about the peregrine falcons, yeah. and uh, they want to they want to know where those are, and and I think they were reintroduced. Also, I think that's just... are they are they still nesting? I know going up to Alum yep. Cave. Um, there was a very well-known peregrine pair that... Yes. Are, are they still up yes. in that area? Yes, they are. Yes. Good deal. Occasionally. Yeah. You know. There are so many success stories. We've, we've mentioned reintroducing elk and otters and all these other animals. Peregrines, at one point, they were considered like on the verge of being wiped out. Yeah. And now peregrines are doing very well. The, the thing that really helps peregrines is they like skyscrapers uh-huh. <laughs> and so some of the bigger cities they, they have peregrines uh-huh. nesting on the ledges i think in knoxville even there is a, a peregrine pair that was nesting on one of the taller buildings in knoxville i didn't know that i hadn't heard that that's interesting yes. yeah you know we're very blessed that the park is here and they've reintroduced so many species that were wiped out um you know Every time I go into the park, I'm so thankful that this is here. These reintroduction of these animals, these species are here. Um, And just like you said, so many people don't even realize the diversity of that whole area. Um, So it's going to be fun to talk about some of these other things, too. So, Well, one of the things we always preach with Wildlife for You, um, in fact, it's, it's our motto for our page is when it comes to wildlife, your knowledge often means their existence. And Mm -hmm. so the more you learn about these animals, the more appreciation you have for them and the more you want them around. And so one of the things we always try, especially with bears and some of those other animals, enjoy the wildlife that's respect the wildlife that's there. So take photographs, appreciate seeing them, try not to get into their business. (laughs) And so Obviously, there's warning signs about approaching bears and other large animals, like elk mm-hmm. even. But even even with uh, some of the other creatures, you can your presence can have an impact on them. I'm almost afraid to mention this because, boy, it, it sets the the social media world ablaze. <laughs> is is when it comes to stacking rocks. I, 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 I was over here thinking, should I say that? <laughs> And and some people yeah. will come unglued about yeah. whether or not it's impactful or not. But the, there are some creatures out there that depend on the natural um, 
structure of that creek mm-hmm. bottom. Mm-hmm. One of the cool animals we didn't mention, it's not a giant animal, but for its classification it is, is the hellbender. Yes, yes. The, the hellbender, if you don't know, is the largest salamander um, in, in North America. Yes. And they're huge. I, you won't be able to see my hands, but they can get huge. And they love these clear, pollution-free beautiful crystal clear streams that you find in the smoke. I have never seen one in person, but I really, really want to see one. If you know a guy who can take me to see me, (laughs) I can follow him. I I have not seen one, but if I, yeah, if I could get the salamander guy to join us, maybe maybe he'll take you on a trip. You know, uh, when when people do come in the park and talk to me uh, about some of the wildlife and and, you know, a lot of people come in and go, well, where's the river we can get down into? And, you know, so I'll give them some directions, but I always tell them, please don't stack the rocks. And, um, you know, when I, I was working on my naturalist certification for the state of Tennessee, when we went out in, into rivers and streams, and it was amazing because we would pick up a rock and turn it over. We'd place it right back where we got, but you'd turn it over and there's <coughs> salamander eggs on the bottom of the rock. Yep. So, you know, most people are just stacking these and not even looking at the bottom and they're, they are destroying the habitat of those salamanders. Um, you know, so I've kind of shared that with some of the visitors who come in and I tell them, if you, you know, if you pick something, if you pick a rock up, put it right, you know, don't pick it up, carry it off, put it right back. And, and that's another thing I'm, that I mentioned, um, I had someone ask me, where can we find gems? <laughs> and I said, well, even if you could, you can't remove them from the park. Yeah. Uh, so it's a protected fun, area. <laughs> funny story about that. Um, I don't know how much TV you watch, but recently within the last decade, there's a lot of this gold mining type of uh, shows. Yeah. And when I was back in Tennessee, so that was prior to 2015, um, one of those, one of those History Channel or Discovery Channel gold finding shows came on, and suddenly we we got noticed that in the Little River, I think in Townsend, someone bought one of those big blasters, those high pressure hoses to start like looking for gold in the Little. Oh, <laughs> like, time out. Oh. Time out. <laughs> and so, anyway, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Having said all that, the the one thing I will say is you get people that love wildlife like you and I. But I also believe you have to have some common sense. Humans are part of this landscape as well. And so I love the fact that people are interested in wildlife and they want to learn more and they want to flip over rocks mm-hmm. to see what's there. And there's going to be caddisflies and all kinds of uh, aquatic insects in there. And like you said, you can put those rocks back. But I'm also of the mindset that there are wild places that need to be, remain wild, but there's also human places. And so, like, places in the park, like, if you're camping at one of the campgrounds, Cades Cove Campground, there's a little stream that runs through there. I think those areas are meant for humans to explore and to see what they can find. And so I have no problem. If you're in the backwoods somewhere where you're in wild spaces, respect the wild Mm -hmm. spaces and leave those things alone. But we want to encourage exploration. We want to encourage or ignite that that green fire in people's minds to 
learn about wildlife as much as they can. So mm -hmm. if it's going to trigger the imagination of a child, by all means, pick up the rock, show them, show them a salamander, put everything back. Right. But um, yeah, I, I, I think there's so much to learn, not just in the park, but pretty much all of nature that, that we have before us. Yes. Yes. Yep. And that's one thing I've told them is explore, you know, just put it back. <laughs> So, Meg, I thoroughly enjoy it. Every once in a while, I'll look down and it's like, holy cow, we've been talking. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> so, I can talk to you for hours and hours, and I feel bad because sometimes I'm like, in the back of my mind, it's saying, give Meg a chance yeah. to talk. <laughs> no, you're answering. So. I'm listening, and I'm learning along with hopefully everybody else because you're answering all the questions. And, you know, I like to bring you questions that I, I'm hearing. Um, and by, I, by all means, yeah. do that. So. And and it's perfect. <laughs> but anyway, we, we just spent the better part of an hour, a little more than an hour, talking about some, a small, yes. tiny, <laughs> tiny fraction of wildlife that you find in Great Smoky Mountain National Park. There's so much more out there to learn and to see and to talk about and to experience. So yes. with that, <clears throat> excuse me, with that, <laughs> it's the COVID talking. I just got over COVID, oh. so I'm not fully back. Oh, <laughs> So um, I do want to thank everyone for tuning in today. We're going to try to do these uh, bi-weekly, maybe, as long as our schedules permit. But Meg, you are always an absolute joy to talk to. Uh, and I hope you come back loaded with questions, and we'll, we'll figure out what the next topic yes. is. Um, at some point, we might venture outside of Great Smoky Mountain National Park and just just talk about wildlife in general. Yes, because so, there's there's questions. We have questions that range the whole United States. <laughs> so with that, I was looking for my book. I was going to do a, a shameless plug oh, for yes. my book. I don't have yes. it Spooning a Bear, look it up on, on Amazon. Um, but with that, I'm going to sign off, say thank you so much for joining Always in a pleasure. Today's, today's video cast. And uh if you have any questions or anything, track Meg down in, in Sugarland's <laughs> Visitor Center, and um, she'll write it down, and she'll come back, and she'll ask me. But stay tuned, and we'll see you, hopefully, in another video cast. Yes. All right.